but now he claims the local authorities informed him this is against the rules and must stop. Why? Get the latest news and sport online at bbc.co.uk slash three counties. Don't be offended, it proves at least someone's listening. <laughs> Just the one. Yeah. Thing is, she doesn't return the favour. She goes and listens to Heart now. I know, it's not rude. Not rude. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's Thursday, I'm excited. I'll tell you why I'm excited, because it's almost Friday, which means it's almost, almost the weekend. Saying that, I'm working all weekend. I'm not complaining. Whoa, in these times of austerity, and boy, aren't things austere at the moment. I'm more than happy to be working seven days a week for the next seven weeks. Oh, means I can treat myself to that new Beach Boys box set I've had my eye on for a while. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How are you feeling after yesterday's budget-type thing? Yeah, you feeling good? You feeling ready? Controversy here at BBC Three Counties Radio. I overruled a suggestion for a story. One of my team, Ben Nye. He got on this little socialist soapbox and wanted to do a thing about how the Queen's um, income has been increased by a little bit. Her spends have gone up a little bit. Everybody else's has gone down. She's the Queen! Of course we should let her spend more money! No, I overruled that one. No, no, no. We will not be dissing Her Majesty this morning. No, 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 no. None of that nonsense. Go back to communist Russia if you want. But things we have got coming up on the show. Very busy this morning. Always keen uh, to have your thoughts on some of these. Including, are abusive and violent teenage relationships more common than we think? Well, the father of a Bedfordshire teenager has spoken publicly for the first time about coping with the death of 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete. She was murdered by her boyfriend in June last year. We'll also hear the latest on the cost of HS2 and how the bill has gone up. Guess why it's gone up? Oh, you won't, you won't believe it. I'll tell you in a little bit. It's incredible what they forgot to factor in. And is this ever acceptable? That was on the tennis. That was on television at tea time yesterday. Disgusting. Noisy grunting women at Wimbledon. Facebook.com forward slash BBC 3CR. You can send me a text, 81333. Start your text, 3CR. And you can give me a call, 08459 455555. Across beds, hearts and bucks. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. The father of a Bedfordshire teenager who was murdered by her boyfriend has spoken publicly for the first time about life without her. 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete from Westerling was stabbed to death by 18-year-old Andrew Hall from Flittick. He's now serving 15 years in jail after pleading guilty to her murder. David Pete has organised a self-defence class to teach youngers to protect themselves against violence. He's described his daughter as a bright, bubbly chatterbox, a typical teenage girl who was full of life. The hardest thing is not seeing her not talking to her just having no contact and and just thinking about the circumstances the decision was taken out of my hands her hands it wasn't an illness you know somebody made the conscious decision to take her life and that's that's a hard thing to live with 
just taking each day as it comes. Now it's, it's been a been a long, hard process. Well, that was David Pete, the father of murdered Megan Lee Pete. Uh, David has now organised a free self defence course for thirteen to twenty year olds. He says he doesn't want what happened to his daughter happening to anyone else. Well, during the court case last year, the prosecution said that on the night Megan Lee was murdered, the couple began arguing about Hall's jealousy, an issue that had regularly caused problems throughout their nine-month relationship. Uh, this morning we're asking, are violent teenage relationships more common than we think? Perhaps you're worried about your child or your grandchild. You can give us a call. You can change names, of course. 08459 455555. Well, Joanna Sharpen is an expert in teenage relationship abuse and has worked with the Home Office advising schools and parents. Morning, Joanna. You've specialised in this area for a number of years. Is it a big problem? It's a huge problem. About 40% of all teenagers are in abusive relationships. That does seem an incredible amount. We were talking about this yesterday, uh, and I guess wrongly, a lot of us suspected that, that teenagers were, were a little bit more savvy about mm. uh, rela- uh, abusive relationships than perhaps my generation are. No, unfortunately not. Actually, 16 to 24-year-olds are the most at risk out of any age group, um, and that's been reflected in the recent government amendment to the domestic violence definition, which now includes 16- and 17-year-olds as victims of domestic violence. Um, but unfortunately, we live in a society where um, it's really hard for people of that age to get a real understanding of what a healthy relationship looks like. Um, when you look at the media, the way that women are sexualised, um, the messages that young men are given about relationships, um, and the fact that they're not being taught these kind of um, healthy relationship skills in schools means that it's really hard for them to try and understand um, what it is to form a healthy relationship and to recognise abuse when it happens. So is there an acceptance among some teenagers that violence is actually part of a normal relationship yeah unfortunately there is um and uh, you know we do see that in adult adult attitudes as well um but what some lots of research has found recently that when you ask young people if it would be acceptable to to hit a boyfriend or girlfriend a lot of them will say no but then when you start to say well what if that person had cheated on you or done such and such then they say well that would be okay and it's always the actions of the victim that are blamed in those situations is there anything being done in schools about this? Are there any kind of educational programmes that highlight this? In some schools around the country, there's some fantastic work going on, but that usually comes down to a really good local voluntary sector organisation going in and doing the work, or a teacher really understanding and championing that issue. Um, unfortunately, there's no statutory guidance um, from government saying that this needs to be covered in schools, and we've been campaigning on this issue for a long time because we think it's so crucial um, that all young people are taught how to have a relationship, how to recognise signs of abuse. Uh, you monitor chat rooms, and I, I understand oh. you hear some pretty horrific cases of, of young people in trouble. Yeah. Um, I moderate um, a website called The Student Room where we've got um, a specific um, forum for young people to disclose abuse and I was involved in the Home Office campaign, This Is Abuse. So some of your listeners may have seen the TV adverts with the boy and the girl in the bedroom and you'd see one of them banging on a glass wall as if to try and stop Oh yes, I do happening. remember that, yes. Yeah. Well, what most people don't know is there's a really good website associated with that called This Is Abuse. So if you Google that, you can find it and there's a, um, all sorts of help and information for parents and young people. Um, but what there's also is, is, is a message board where young people can leave messages of their experiences and a lot of young people are seeing these adverts for the first time and thinking hang on a minute that's happening to me is that not okay um, and there's horrific stories of abuse on there from some very young girls as well experiencing all sorts of different um, different things in their relationships and really not knowing where to go and how to get help 
So just what what should people do, Joanna, if if they are worried about their relationship or or their children's or their grandchildren's relationship? Where mm-hmm. can they go? Well, I would go onto this website that Home Office has set up called This Is Abuse, um, or you could look at the local um, Women's Aid website. Um, on the This Is Abuse website, it would give lots of information for young people. There's a relationship checklist they can go through to see what's happening and whether it's healthy or not. Um, there's also um, a leaflet that the Home Office um, wrote for parents, um, which gives you lots of warning signs to look out for in your child's behaviour, how to have that difficult conversation with them about what might be going on, because we know that about 75% of parents aren't aware that their teenagers are in these abusive relationships. Um, so there is this real need to have that conversation, but it can be a difficult one to have. Joanna, I appreciate your time this morning. Joanna Sharpen, expert in teenage relationship abuse. Well, if you are... It's a tough question to ask, isn't it? But if you are in a... Uh, you're a young person in an abusive relationship, or you're worried about your, your kids or your grandkids, uh, do give us a call this morning. We can change names and locations, of course. 08459 455 555. Morning, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Talking about uh, young people in abusive relationships. Uh, if you are in one, or if you're the parent or grandparent of someone and you think that there's, there's something perhaps going on that isn't quite right in terms of uh, possibly being involved in an abusive relationship. Do give me a call. We can change names and locations uh, in this instance. 08459 455 555. You can send me a text as well. 81333. Start your text 3CR. Right, 616 or thereabouts. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, this is a story that we covered earlier uh, in the week. Severe criticism of the ambulance service which covers Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. One of the five non-executive board members resigned at yesterday's meeting of the under-fire... East of England Ambulance Trust in Bedford. Well, our political reporter, Paul Scoynes, was there. Take us, uh, first of all, Paul, through the criticism that the Trust has had. Well, Ian, uh, this is, first of all, a big trust. Let's, let's not uh, beat around the bush. It's a large area. It covers Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Essex, Hearts and Norfolk and Suffolk. So it's a huge area, if you think about it. And earlier this year, the Trust was criticised in a report by a, uh, the chief exec of another ambulance service, who's called Dr Anthony Marsh, uh, and he wrote that report because the trust have been quite severely criticized by the we all know them this care quality commission the cqc they've been under fire recently too now there were negative findings in both those reports the uh, the reports were critical of the board structure saying the management system was too complicated uh, the performance figures weren't hitting the target if you look here in the report yesterday there's lots and lots of red the red is bad i mean shown some graphs yeah, with lots of red on yeah lots of red which means that they're not hitting targets yep. and things like response times or answering calls fast enough um, and there was also concerns raised about the actual process of handling the patients, handing the p- patients over to hospitals and that turnaround time, because obviously you want the ambulances out as quickly as possible. Mm. And there was also uh, a considerably high level of sick leave too. And at one point it reached 14% of the staff were on sick. So the ambulance uh, service was criticised. However, the staff and the, the managers, the actual you know boots on the ground, if you like, they were praised. They were said that they were very good. MPs have been very critical, haven't they? Pretty Patel in particular has been quite outspoken about this. Yes, you'll speak to her later. She said that uh, she's an MP for Witham and she said that uh, scandal and incompetence has put lives at risk. A Suffolk MP, Therese Coffey, said that until the non-exec directors go, we will not have any confidence in the leadership. Uh, the Care Minister and uh, Lib Dem MP in Norfolk, Norman Lamb, said that it has to be a watershed, this report. We've now got to have clear, effective leadership. And another Conservative Richard Bacon, who's also a Norfolk MP, said that the trust 
were uh, the staff of the trust, the ambulance service staff, were lions led by donkeys. Um, and uh, and there have been calls for further resignations. And as we said earlier, the trust's uh, chair had stepped down in March and several non-exec directors, including one yesterday, have left well, so as well. What is the trust going to do then? Well, they made some recommendations. Uh, there were 25 in a report made to them. They also identified 89 actions of their own. Um, they are now going to boil all of those actions down into one single plan uh, and put all of those criticisms together and then specifically make certain directors responsible for certain targets. So they say that will make it more transparent and also uh, make it easier to hold people to account. The interim trust chief executive, who's called Andrew Morgan, he said yesterday that the recent reviews weren't a surprise but that the uh, criticism was rightly justified. Some people uh, have said that the trust has come in for unfair criticism, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. We heard those MPs, but uh, some people who were at the meeting yesterday felt that those MPs were perhaps uh, speaking out of turn, that perhaps some had just got cottoned on to the fact that this was happening. Bit of bandwagon jumping, Bit of bandwagon jumping, absolutely. Peter Blackman from the local health watches across the region, they're sort of an independent oversight, if you like, of of the members of the public, says it's rather unfair of those MPs to line up and criticise the trust. I've never seen an MP at a board meeting. I've been coming to these board meetings for some years uh, as an independent critical friend i have never recognized a trust in crisis it's like any other large organization there are areas where, where it can improve the original cqc report highlighted that it was doing everything else right the only criticism the only deficiency was on the performance targets i've offered to speak to the mps on a number of occasions um, but so far um, that hasn't been arranged. The MPs are, would you say, perhaps even jumping on a bang run. We've had one after the other from Suffolk to Norwich to other ones as well. Are they being unfair to the board? I was horrified when an individual MP was shown on our regional television on the BBC describing this board as donkeys and I think that was highly inappropriate, misleading. I'm on record as saying that it's a great shame that this trust has lost uh, one of the best quality directors and one of the best medical directors in the country. And that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of, of outside independent regulators as well. I think that the baby has gone out with the bathwater. Very interesting. Uh, that was uh, Peter Blackman. Uh, Paul, thank you very much. Uh, okay. We will speak to you about this again at some point. Pretty clear we'll be coming in. Uh, we'll be speaking to us uh, a little bit later on and we'll be awaiting next Friday's report with interest and bring you the details here on BBC Three Counties Radio. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. You can go to... That was Paul slamming down his headphones, by the way. If you wondered what that dull echo was, that was Paul Scoyne's. Slamming down his headphones, it was the, the noise you may have heard uh, there. We'll be talking about tennis a little bit later on. As you know, Wimbledon is not my favourite, uh, favourite thing. Although, I missed this last night. Did you see this? It's disgusting. No, it's not a mucky film. This is a tennis tournament that was on television last night. We had an email about it. Steve has emailed in. First of all, praising the BBC for the Wimbledon... Will you shut up? I applaud that. It only encourages them. Uh, praising the BBC for the excellent Wimbledon coverage. 
But then he goes on to say, having just watched the Sharapova and Larcher de Brito match, which is what that audio was from, I cannot believe that people pay good money to hear two professional tennis players screaming and grunting at each other. It was so bad, my three-year-old son who was watching with me started to mimic the grunting, as well as asking me why they were making those noises. Not only did I turn the channel over as I couldn't bear it any longer, but I think the tennis authorities need to do something to stop the noise they make, as I'm sure it does put other tennis players off. What do you think? Did you see this tennis match last night? Was it as uh, as bad as that? It's that's taking the mick, isn't it? To make that kind of noise, that is having a laugh. You don't need. And they say, "Oh yeah, no, it helps. It helps my performance." Well, hang on a second. What other athletic at- activity do people make? The, you don't when people hit the, and kick a football. Oh! People hit a golf ball. Oh! There's no other sport, is there? When people are building walls. Oh! There's no other activity. If you made that noise at work, you get the sack. Oh, wait, four, five, nine, four, double, five, five, double, five. Is that noise ever acceptable? I think there is just one other sport. It's uh, throwing the hammer at the Olympics and other sporting events like that, because they make noises very similar. But even the, no- even the hammer throwers, they're not as loud and as ridiculous as those silly tennis people. I suppose they're not, actually, now that you mention Give it. Give us a grunt, Adam. Oh, You're fired. Oh. All right, I'll get my coat. Adam Glynn, BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Adam. Well, here's BBC Three Counties' very own grunter. In more ways than one, it's Catherine Boyle. Uh, the form- oh, that was really loud. And that's your latest news and sport. Uh, and that was... Is that me? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you... Re- Whose grunt is this? Oh, wait, four, five, nine, four, double, five, five, double, five. Yes, it was you, Catherine. Terrifying. Yes. Gosh, yes. I am frightening, aren't I? We recorded you secretly in the office <laughs> earlier on. And is this, that, is that as, is I got out uh, ch- as I got out of my chair? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a whole set of buttons marked embarrassing <laughs> Catherine Boyle, so just, you know, be careful. <laughs> it's the first time in years I've listened to that song properly, and I've forgotten there is a very, very filthy joke in that song. There is a filthy, filthy joke in there. There's a very naughty line. And now I've said it's a naughty line, I can't say what the line is, because it is quite obscene. Those Beatles were very, very naughty boys. Coming up in the next 30 minutes of the show, we'll be talking about a gentleman who's been told, no, you can't cut the grass. You cannot cut the grass. We'll also be talking uh, uh, about grunts in tennis. But before that, something I predicted yesterday. I, I said that HS2 was going to cost £50 billion. I was wrong. It's going to cost £36 billion. That was a mistake on my part. Mistake or prediction? Because now it's going to cost about £50 billion. HS2 is getting more and more expensive, and you wait till you hear the reason why. MPs have backed plans to build a controversial high-speed rail link, but the bill could be nearly £10 billion higher than planned. The line from London to Birmingham and on to uh, Manchester and Leeds may cost more than £42.5 billion. 39 MPs, most of them Conservative, opposed the scheme, but the Transport Secretary, Patrick McLaughlin, told them it had national importance. I am not prepared to put up with a situation where you can get to Brussels on an high-speed train line, but not to Birmingham. Where you can get to Strasbourg on high-speed trains, but not to Sheffield. To Lille, but not to Leeds. We cannot afford to leave the economic future of our great cities like Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds and Sheffield, Nottingham and Derby to an overcrowded 200-year-old railway. 
Mr McLaughlin insists the new higher cost includes a large contingency fund. He points out this contingency money was built into the London Olympics budget, but the cost ended up below the price that had been set by the government. Labour backs the rail link, but the Shadow Transport Secretary Maria Eagle pointed out the minister had forgotten to mention something. Here's where the extra cost comes in. They didn't factor in the cost of the trains. The government should now also be clear that the £42.6 billion cost of completing a north-south line as far as Leeds and Manchester does not include the £7.5 billion cost of the trains uh, to run on the line. Um, uh, the Secretary of State has made that clear today. Uh, these are actually a fairly essential part of the project and they ought to be included in the estimates in future. They didn't include the cost of the trains. The former Tory cabinet minister and Conservative MP for Chesham and Amersham, Cheryl Gillan, said the cost was rising on a minute-by-minute basis, but she accepted the government would win the vote. Her demand was for better compensation for those who'll lose their homes because they live along the planned route. The compensation scheme to date has been totally inadequate and the engagement of officials and ministers, often the dialogue of the deaf, quite frankly, and this bill does not include specific undertakings on compensation that would fulfil the Prime Minister's assurance to me that compensation would be timely and generous to those people adversely affected. Labour's Clive Betts said some of those affected were starting to realise they would be forced to move. They they accept that to a degree, but what they're saying to me is, um, is it reasonable, therefore, for the greater good of the country, that if they have to move from their home where they don't want to move, they should simply get 100% of the market value plus home loss? Isn't there any room for the Secretary to be a bit more generous? The Transport Secretary said he was considering a range of compensation options, including a property bond. That would mean an agreement to pay a homeowner the same sum for their property as if the rail line were not being built. But other MPs said for much less than the cost of the high-speed line, ministers could buy greater improvements. The Labour MP Kelvin Hopkins said for a couple of billion, the government could upgrade the East Coast mainline. We'll be talking about this uh, a little bit later on uh, in the programme. But do you remember when the um, the, the uh, Olympics was, was, was all being touted and they were saying how much it would cost? And then halfway down the line, they forgot to... They said, oh, yeah, we forgot to factor in the VAT. Oh, right. And so this time, HS2... Oh, yeah, we forgot to include the trains. Oh, right, I see. You forgot to include the trains. I see. Yeah, oh, right. Does that worry you? Does it surprise you that the government is incompetent enough that when they're considering the cost of a brand new rail line that's costing X billion pounds, they forget to include the cost of the trains? 08459 four double five five double five. Little bit of Neil Diamond. It'd be rude not to, wouldn't it? <coughs> Give that a tune. That's not a beautiful noise, is it? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. These grunts are ridiculous, aren't they? They're just stupid. They don't provide any benefit to the game. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. You can call up and uh, tell me your thoughts on that, and also give me your best grunt as well. And uh, you can also go to Facebook. There's an interesting uh, comment we've had on uh, the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash BBC Three CR. We've posted up this uh, audio of the grunts. And um, want your comments on there. Gabby Constantini has replied. You're so funny! 
I don't know if Gabby speaks in that accent. I just kind of, I, I kind of imagine her for some reason to be a Russian woman. I have no, I have no evidence to back that up whatsoever. Gabby, do let us know what nationality you are and what accent you use when you say you are so funny. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five is the telephone number. If you want to give us a call about any of the things we're talking uh, about today, look, I'm trying to do. The reason I'm talking here is I'm trying to do something very clever with the computer and failing miserably. Now I've done it. No one noticed the Manky Mattress Show. I'm calling it from now on. Have you listened to JVS recently? Uh, the Consumer Hour is genuinely my favourite hour of radio between eleven and twelve. It's wonderful. I love all of that stuff. But it's just manky mattresses. It's, it's constantly being played with people phoning in. Talk about their memory foam mattresses, a concept I can't even begin to understand. Why would you want to sink into your mattress? We don't sleep in the same position all the time. It's a crazy idea. But all of these mattresses have turned a little bit manky. He should do a memory foam manky mattress special one day. And I'm, I'm going to have words with him later on and make sure that happens. I like Emily Sande. She gets um, knocked a lot, partly because of her ridiculous hair, but also because she appears on everything. Yeah, good for her. It's her job. She knows she's not going to be around forever. Cash in while you can, Emily. Give her a hard time. She writes good songs and she sings good. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that in the slightest. And I'm sure she's grateful that uh, I'm on her side. That will give her a good start to the day. Residents in Buckinghamshire have been told they are contravening health and safety rules by tidying up public land around their village pond. Bob Ranger, who lives in Milton Keynes Village, says he's been mowing the grass near his house for years after the council failed to do it. But MK Council have now ordered him to stop. Well, our reporter, Justin Dealey, is with Bob by Del Pond. Justin, c- can you describe what the area is like for, for those who don't know it? Ian, it's glorious. Absolutely glorious. Now that you found the right location. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently three Walton Roads in Milton Keynes, but, right. but this one, of course, in Milton Keynes Village. As I look to my right-hand side, I can see the pond. It is well looked after. It's in a small village. You've got the, the mayhem of Milton Keynes a few minutes away, and here, this quiet area absolutely stunning, especially first thing in the morning. Bob, thank you for your time. Um, you're live across Beds, Hearts and Bucks. You've been cutting the grass here for four years. Why did you start in the first place? Oh, good morning, Justin. Um, I started because the council made such a mess of it. The parish council and the council uh, took responsibility for what is common land. It doesn't belong to the council or the parish council. It, um, and they just didn't do it. Uh, it was waist-high nettles, uh, there were weeds, uh, there were overgrown shrubs, and as a group of residents, there's about 20 of us, um, we decided that, in fact, we'd take responsibility. We met with the council, they gave us their full approval. Um, the director of environmental services at the time said, yes, no problem, he offered me money, he offered me mach- machinery, and right up until the 17th of April... Um, we had council approval. They came out to visit me on the 17th of April and said, what a fantastic job we're doing, how wonderful it looks. We want to plant trees, we want to do this, we want to do that. Um, And then a a month later, I got a letter from a secretary saying, get lost, Uh, keep off this area, Um, and for no reason. We tried and tried and tried to find a reason. They completely blanked us and ignored us. So they're saying health and safety. Is that what they're saying then? Well, yesterday they said it's unsafe for me to cross a road with a mower and mow an area which is in some places 20 metres from a road because I might get knocked down. Now, you're doing this because you want the area to be nice, well-maintained, around 20 of you doing this. So what happens tomorrow if you mow the lawn here? Will you be arrested? Well, they they arrested me before because my children and 
and I came over here to mow, to rake up um, leaves in the autumn. Um, so they called the police um, and had me arrested. For uh, what? Uh, for destroying the habitat of a great crested newt. But I, I was raking up leaves in the autumn. And this has got nothing to do with newts on this occasion. How angry are you about this, Bob? I'm pretty angry about it because we're working hard as part of this big society that Mr Cameron keeps on about. We, we're working hard to improve our neighbourhood, keep it tidy, pick up the litter and make an environment that people come to and enjoy. Kids come and feed the ducks, uh, people picnic on the grass. It's wonderful. OK, just lastly, in 30 seconds, what is your message to Milton Keynes Council? What would you like to, to see happen next? Well, I think that these uh, it's an inept and silly decision, both from John Bint and the council. Um, it's ridiculously silly. We've asked for a meeting with the council. I've asked David Hill, the chief executive of the council, to meet me. He completely blanks me, and his secretary told me yesterday he doesn't have a mobile phone. She couldn't contact him because he hasn't got a mobile phone. Do you believe that? Uh, no, and if he hasn't got a mobile phone, I'll buy him one. So if he's listening to this right now, you want to meet him, you think this is utterly ridiculous. You are doing the people a favour here. I'm helping the community with a group of other people. Mr Hill should take responsibility. He seems to ignore what's going on. I think there was a matter of a bridge he didn't know anything about. I suppose he doesn't know about my grass either. But Mr Hill, if you're listening, please get in contact because I'll buy you a mobile phone. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. There. There's the passion. I have to say, Ian, the area is certainly well maintained. This has been happening for four years or so, and you've heard the words of Bob there. Mr Hill, if you are listening, they want a meeting with you. He's furious, isn't he? Mm, he is, he's, absolutely. He's furious. Well, uh, we, we have tried to put a call into the council. We've got a little statement from them that I'll read in a second, but we will we will put in another call today, Justin, and I'll, I'll trust you with that, to, to Mr Hill, to see if we can arrange a meeting and this exchange of a, of a mobile phone. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I mean looking at the area here, you would say it's a well-maintained area. Why would the council want to change it when, as far as I can see, in just a personal opinion, this area, and again, I'll take a photograph of the Facebook page, it looks absolutely fantastic. Why would you want to change that? Justin, thank you very much indeed. Well, we did ask the council to come on. They sent us a statement. The council wrote to a representative of the local residents in May of this year in response to correspondence received from the residents' group. We thanked them for their previous efforts to maintain Del Pond and proposed that the council takes full responsibility for all maintenance going forward. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Lots and lots coming up in the next hour. Always uh, keen to get your opinions and your thoughts. Are abusive and violent teenage relationships perhaps more common than we think? The father of a Bedfordshire teenager has spoken publicly for the first time about coping with the death of 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete. She was murdered by her boyfriend in June last year. We'll hear the latest on the cost of HS2 and how the bill has gone up because <laughs> they forgot to include the price of the trains. Are you joking? No. And is this ever acceptable? the tennis yesterday. That was Sharapova versus Larcha de Brito. But one of the tennis players has been complaining already. I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's over and done with. It's already an old topic, the grunting. People keep going on and on about it. Of course they keep going on and on about it because it's ridiculous. You're showing off. It does sound like rotting foxes, doesn't it? I 
think you can say rutting on the air. I think you can. We'll find out later on if, uh, if I get a slap wrist or not. Facebook.com forward slash BBC 3CR. You can send a text 81333. Start your text 3CR. Or you can give me a phone call 08459 455 555. Hold everything. Here come the coffee man. Across beds, hearts and bucks. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. The father of a Bedfordshire teenager who was murdered by her boyfriend has spoken publicly for the first time about life without her. 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete from Westerning was stabbed to death by 18-year-old Andrew Hall from Flittick. He's now serving 15 years in jail after pleading guilty to her murder. David Pete has organised a self-defence class to teach youngsters to protect themselves against violence. He says he doesn't want what happened to his daughter happening to anyone else. David has been speaking exclusively to our reporter, Neil Bradford. When I hear of things in the news where people have been stabbed or that kind of thing, it just brings everything back and you're reliving everything all over again. And if I could stop it ever happening again, I would do. I know this one self-defence course isn't going to stop it ever happening again, but if it can help limit it happening again, then that's what I'd like to do. It's just doing something positive out of something that's been so negative. And you are involved in, in martial arts anyway, so this, this is really, I suppose, something you felt that you could do? Yes, definitely, yeah. yeah. I, was, I spoke to my instructor about it, and um, sort of originally the idea was for me to, to fund the class myself, and then he mentioned raising the money. And um, since then we've been put, putting our heads together, and it's snowballed from there, and we finally got a date and the funding and it's all systems go some people might say teaching this kind of thing is is not necessarily the right way to tackle violence what do you say to that it's it's teaching self-defense i mean everyone's got a right to defend themselves so it's not like we're teaching people to be violent it's going to be teaching people against being attacked and just simple methods they can use to to help either stop them being attacked or limit the damage if they are ever attacked and just talk us through how the past year has been because it's just been over a year since megan was murdered what what has life been like for you and your family very difficult it's personally had a lot of counseling to to be able to cope with most things still not still not 100 percent, but it's 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 just something i don't want anyone else going through it's been it's been absolute hell i think there's certain things that trigger me off um it could be could be a song it could be a smell it could be anything you know so it's you, you just it's just constantly on your mind and what's been the hardest thing the, the hardest thing is not seeing her not talking to her just having no contact and and just thinking about the circumstances the decision was taken out of my hands her hands it wasn't an illness you know somebody made the conscious decision to take her life and that's, that's a hard thing to live with. What type of person was Megan? How do you remember her? Um, as bright, bubbly, chatterbox. She just just a t- typical teenage girl. She was so full of life. She was, she was never down. She was always up. If you felt her a little bit down, you could always ring her up and you'd always feel better straight afterwards. She was a very good listener to, to her friends. Yeah, just, just missed learning to live without her and just taking each day as it comes now it's it's been a been a long hard process which i'm not 
at the end of, and I don't think I ever will be. No parent wants to, their child to go before them, so and it's a terrible thing to go through. You know, I can remember it as if it was just this morning. It's very, very much in my memory, and I don't think that'll ever go. Well, that was David Pete, the father of uh, murdered Megan Lee. Pete speaking to our reporter, Neil Bradford. During the court case last year, the prosecution said that on the night Megan Lee was murdered, the couple began arguing about Hall's jealousy, an issue that had regularly caused problems throughout their nine-month relationship. Well, this morning, we're asking, are violent teenage relationships perhaps more common than we think? Maybe you're worried about your kids or your grandchildren. If you are, could you give us a call? We can change names and locations and, 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 and things like that. 08459 455 555. Or if you'd rather, you can text him 81333. Start your text 3CR. Well, earlier on in the show, I spoke to Joanna Sharpen. She's an expert in teenage relationship abuse and has worked with the Home Office advising schools and parents. She says 40% of teenage relationships are abusive. 16 to 24-year-olds are the most at risk out of any age group. Um, And that's been reflected in the recent government amendment to the domestic violence definition, which now includes 16 and 17-year-olds as victims of domestic violence. Um, But unfortunately, we live in a society where um, it's really hard for people of that age to get a real understanding of what healthy relationship looks like um when you look at the media the way that women are sexualized um the messages that young men are given about relationships um and the fact that they're not being taught these kind of um healthy relationship skills in schools means that it's really hard for them to try and understand um what it is to form a healthy relationship and to recognize abuse when it happens well, the NSPC says, uh, PCC say nearly 75% of girls and 50% of boys have reported some sort of emotional partner abuse or physical violence. Eliza Ribeiro says started the charity Lives Not Knives to prevent teenagers from carrying a knife and to make parents and adults aware of what they do. She founded the campaign in 2007 at the age of 14. She joins me now. Good morning, Eliza. Good morning. You're 19 now, and amongst your, your friends and the teenagers who come to your charity, are more teenagers experiencing abusive relationships? Um, we've received a lot of younger girls um, coming to us for advice and help, but not wanting to speak out about actually what's happening to them. Well, what what kind of things are they are getting advice about? What kind of things are they, are they worried about? They're worried about if it's normal for boys to act in a certain way with them, if it's normal for the jealousy, if it's normal for people to look through their phones, um, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and then moving on to bigger stuff, like if it's normal for him to actually hurt her if if she does something wrong. And these are teenage girls, what, 15, 16, 17, something like that? Um, even younger, probably from 13 and 14. There are 13 and 14-year-old girls who who have to question whether it's normal for a guy to hit them? To Yeah, to question whether it's normal for... Um, for them to be punished if they've done something as, they, as, as they've been called wrong, in that sense, if they protect someone else or an abuse of co- out with someone else. An abuse, of course, is it, it, th- there is the physical aspect, there is the, 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 the psychological and the bullying aspect yeah. as well. I find it incredible, Eliza, that, I, I mean, I'm always amazed uh, um, that, that, that some people stay in abusive relationships, but I find it incredible that, that teenagers, who I thought were quite savvy, are having to question whether this stuff is acceptable or not. I was um, in a primary school yesterday and the teacher said to me that um, the, the, it's scary because the year group she's working with at the moment, the girls are following the boys around their playgrounds because that's their boyfriends and how quickly young girls can get caught up in crimes and stuff like that because they believe that that person loves them from an age of 10. 
where are they learning this from? Where are they learning that it's it's okay to be in a relationship where you're bullied either mentally or physically? I do not know. I think that there's loads of TV programs at the moment about being in love and you have to find love and 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 then there's that sense of belonging and I think that would obviously affect a young mind. I, I, I would imagine that perhaps some of this has to come from, from families and seeing relationships uh, at home with their parents. I think if you're brought up thinking that violence is fine, then when you get older you're going to still feel that violence is okay. It's a pretty bleak outlook, isn't it, Eliza? If, if we've got kids, and they are kids at that age... Yeah. questioning this and, and not sure whether it is unusual to be, you know, to be given a slap just because you texted the wrong person. Yeah, they, they genuinely, some of them genuinely think it's normal and think that if they do that, that that's what they're expected to get. People speak to you, Eliza. D- d- a teenager comes and speaks to you. What, what can you do? How do you offer help? Um, we work with rape crisis as well in, in secondary schools. Um, delivering sexual health workshops, explaining what a good and bad relationship is, and rape crisis are amazing and offer support for young women. Um, so we're able to to talk to, to uh, send them there for um, counselling and help. You're also, I've also got to wonder as well, you know, and, and, and I'm generalising slightly. I know it happens both ways, but I'm kind of focusing on on the girls getting hit around by by blokes. Where is where are the boys learning that it's okay? To, to give someone a slap just because they've, they've done something that, that they, they disagree with? Um, there was a saying that, that used to be said quite a lot when I was younger. I think when I was about 14, 15, there was a saying saying, um, if, you get, if you act like a boy, you get treated like a boy. So if you can be brave enough to be rude to someone, then expect, expect to be rude, get someone to be rude back to you or for a boy to threaten you or hurt you. Uh, Eliza, it's really nice to talk to you. It, it, it's quite a bleak picture. Are you optimistic yeah. for the future <laughs> that we can turn this around? Definitely. OK, Definitely. Well, that's good. Eliza, thanks very much for coming on. That's uh, Eliza Ribeiro, um, who started Lives Not Knives. Well, I'm thoroughly depressed after that. 13, 14, 15-year-old girls are questioning whether it's OK to have blokes going through their phones, mentally abusing them, giving them a slap every now and then because they texted someone they didn't like... Really? Isn't that a bleak outlook? Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. If there's someone in your family where you suspect something like this is happening, maybe it's your grandchild or, or, or your daughter or your son. Uh, give us a call. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Maybe you've seen your grandson, and I'm generalising slightly. Okay, I know it happens both ways, but maybe you've seen your, your grandson or your son be rude and disrespectful, and maybe a little bit aggressive with their girlfriend. Did you step in? Did you say anything? Or did you say, oh, it's just boys, just boys? Oh, eight four five nine four double five five double five. We can change names and locations, of course. Now, this is a story that we covered earlier this week. Severe criticism of the ambulance service which covers Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. On Tuesday, the government was urged to sack five members of the East of England Ambulance Service Board after a report found it has seriously failed in its responsibility to patients. It's the lowest performing ambulance trust in England, with some patients left waiting two or more hours for a paramedic to arrive. Well, yesterday, one of the five non-executive board members resigned at yesterday's meeting in Bedford. The Conservative MP Pretty Patel, who led Tuesday's parliamentary debate, joins me now. Good morning, Pretty. Has this gone far enough for you? No, it really hasn't. There are still so many questions, really, that need to be answered by the board of this ambulance trust. 
And I have to say, I think, you know, there still is scope for a thorough investigation in terms of, you know, what these individuals were up to, because we've had a very, very damning governance report that was published two weeks ago, which effectively condemned all board members and the non-exec directors and accused them of effectively failing the trust and not being capable of doing their job. So remind me of why you want these people to quit. Right, there is a long and sorry saga at this ambulance trust of governance and management. Um, the trust has gone through various reports, various investigations actually. The Care Quality Commission, they've been in the news recently, they published an investigation earlier on this year. And the report was pretty damning about the fact that this ambulance trust was failing on key targets. Don't forget we've had a culture of targets in the NHS on ambulance times. Um, and basically get into patients. And the problem with this trust is that it effectively covers almost six counties. It is an enormous trust, um, and they've not been able to, you know, use their resources um, in the right way, allocating them in the right way to actually get to patients. So we've had a CQC report. They're being looked at by and have been looked at by Monitor as well. And there has been another report that was published two weeks ago, an independent report by a gentleman called Anthony Marsh, who actually worked for the highest performing ambulance trust in the country, West Midlands, and completely independent, the government structure and the individuals who've been running the trust and basically condemned them all and said they were not doing a good job and there are many questions to be asked. Yesterday, Pretty, we spoke, we spoke to uh, Neil Storey, the executive director of operations, uh, and he said that there have been mistakes in the past, but they've been rectified, they were looking towards the future, uh, and that those uh, people you wanted to resign, they didn't need to resign, it would be pointless if they, if they quit. I'm quite surprised by it, if, if that's a statement and a comment that he has made, because it's very clear in the government's report that was published two weeks ago that the board members were utterly condemned. There is no confidence in them. And there are, there are significant issues still about the period when this ambulance trust is going through the foundation trust application process. Um, about what assessment of governance took place in this entire ambulance trust. I don't see how people who've been running this trust or been on the board of this trust for a considerable period of time when a huge catalogue of failures were taking place and when patients' lives were put at risk, how they can contribute in a positive way to resolving all the problems at this trust. What has happened is so serious, it really is. Patients' lives have been put at risk. And quite frankly, this trust needs a clean break now. It needs fresh people professional people with the right kind of skills and expertise um, and knowledge, I think, as well, and expertise within the NHS to actually move things forward. They cannot have the same people, particularly as they've been condemned as the way that they have been in the government review that was published two weeks ago. They are making some changes, aren't they, to their personnel? There's, there's a new chair, the chief exec is new, and, and many of the other directors are new. That, that, that doesn't go f- far enough for you? No, I mean, it's too early for that. And the new chair, uh, we had um, Dr Jeff Harris, He has been brought in very specifically to turn this around, so quite rightly, he needs a period of time to do that. But there are so many questions still about the whole assessment of the governance during the Foundation Trust application process and these individuals. I mean, the governance review published two weeks ago, it makes it categorically clear that these individuals failed. They had no sense of leadership. They were just almost caught in the headlights, quite literally, not knowing what to do when the errors were literally coming out of their ears, the catalogue of errors, the problems with meeting time, and the fact that patients across the region were left waiting for hours for an ambulance. Earlier on in the show, we did hear from uh, Peter Blackman. He's from the local health, watches, uh, 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 local health Watch. He says it's unfair of MPs to line up and criticise the Trust when there are positive changes taking place. 
look, these positive changes are far too early and they've come far too late right now, basically, after years and years of failures at this particular trust. Now, I have to say, the members of Parliament, hats off to them across the entire region. As I said, this ambulance trust covers an enormous geography. They have done a better job of scrutiny and asking questions of this particular ambulance trust than those board members have, actually. I think it's pretty fair to say that those board members, when they've had their meetings, the non-exec directors were simply not asking the questions that needed to be asked of the leadership of the trust. And effectively, that's what the members of Parliament have done. And without that, and also without the fact that we've been able to raise constituent cases. We have to raise them because it's just been so horrific, the waiting times, the way that patients' lives have been put at risk. I think that comment is completely unfounded. These members of the board should have been doing their jobs. That's, that's basically the role. Scrutiny, oversight scrutiny, looking at the data, asking difficult questions, being challenging of the leadership. That is the job of a board member. You must have been disappointed yesterday at the meeting, Pretty, when uh, only one of the, uh, the the board members stepped down. I believe she was going to be leaving in a few months anyway. Were you disappointed? Well, I think, you know, these individuals, um, as the Minister said during the debate that we had on Tuesday, the Minister made it quite clear that some of these individuals need to look at themselves and their conscience, basically, in terms of the way that they've conducted themselves. You know, I, I absolutely maintain it's for these individuals to make that call and that decision. But I find it astonishing that despite the fact that the Care Quality Commission has basically condemned this ambulance trust, we've had a governance review that absolutely condemned the board members of this ambulance trust as well, that these individuals still seem to think that they should stay in place. It is absurd. They have failed, not just the ambulance trust, but they have failed the public across the eastern region and they've put lives at risk. And I just don't see how they can continue in their roles. Pretty, well, finally, where do you go ne- next? How do you follow this up? Well, we will follow this up by um, staying in touch with the new leadership, in particular the interim chair of the trust as well. We want to see action plans. We need to see turnaround plans. Importantly, and I, and I really do think the trust should be much more public about this, we have been informed by Dr. Harris that there will be a skills and capability review of every single aspect of leadership of the trust, and I think that is to be welcome. But I actually think um, that should be subject to getting rid of the current board members and bringing in the headhunters in sooner rather than later. Pretty Patel, thank you very much indeed. That's Conservative MP Pretty Patel, 08459 455 555. Email 3cr at bbc.co.uk BBC Three Counties Radio We did ask, just to... Put a full stop at the end of that. We did ask the Department of Health to come on the uh, show today. They were unable to provide a guest, but in a statement said, patients have a right to a high-quality, reliable, urgent and emergency care system whenever they call on it and should not experience excessive waits for treatment. I understand the Trust Development Authority will now work with the East of England Ambulance Trust Board to ensure the recommendation of Dr Anthony Marsh's independent review are taken forward. Should we have a quick look at the front pages of the papers? Why the heck not? I've just had a strong cup of coffee, and boy, I've got a little bit of a buzz. The buzz is kicking in now. We're all a bit wild-eyed. You forget your, your youngsters at Glastonbury this weekend popping pills like there's no tomorrow. Get a strong cup of coffee inside your kids. <sighs> Let's put on some Jimi Hendrix records, shall we? Right. Uh, the Times. Another man has lost a game of tennis. Oh, no! Oh, this is outrageous! Um, he's a famous tennis man, is he? I don't know. Uh, Federer, I've heard of him, yes. Uh, Roger Federer. Has, uh, is Jimmy Connors... Well, how's he doing this year? Is he doing well? 
And uh, Agassi. Uh, Agassi's my favourite. I can't wait to see him in the final. Agassi versus Connors. That's what I'd like to see. Jimmy Connors is not too old. He's not even too old for the veterans. How, how rude. Jimmy Connors, Andre Agassi, stars, tennis superstars. Do you remember Agassi had that long hair and then he, he, he shaved it all off because he was going bald? Is he still going out with Steffi Graf? I went to Wimbledon once. I don't like Wimbledon. I went to Wimbledon once. Are they married? And uh, Steffi Graf on the television, I always thought, looked big nose, big thighs. Big nose, big thighs. I walked past Steffi Graf at Wimbledon. She was one of the most beautiful women. I've, I know, in the, the TV doesn't do her justice. In the, in the flesh, beautiful flesh. I know. Uh, uh, there is a little bit of a hooter. I quite like big noses on women. I like, and, and a slight wonky eye. I like the imperfections. Uh, Osborne, uh, Osborne turns guns on benefit. We'll talk about um, George Osborne uh, just after half past seven and the, the changes he's put into place about benefits. Got to learn English. We'll have a little um, chat about that a bit later on. Uh, the cuts that keep on coming is the front page of The Guardian. Osborne slashes public sector jobs and makes jobless wait for benefits and £11 billion savings. Great Ormond Street. What's this? I have an interest in Great Ormond Street, having spent a lot of time there the other week. Great Ormond Street gagged top doctor over safety fears. The country's best-known children's hospital imposed a gagging order on one of Britain's leading doctors after she raised concerns about patient safety, triggering rows with managers which led to her departure. I'll read of that later on. Uh, the Independent, Federer turfed out, because they play on grass. The Wonga coup, Osborne's gift to the payday lenders, fears that welfare claimants forced to wait longer for benefits will be driven into debt. The Daily Telegraph, farewell Federer. Osborne wields welfare acts. And um, we'll do the Express, the Mail and the Sun a little bit later on, shall we? We'll have a look at those a little bit later on. 08459 455 555 is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. Oh, and that's your latest news and sport. More from me at 8 o'clock. When he said the back of a bus, I thought he meant me! <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, it wasn't, though. Across beds, hearts and bucks. This is Ian Lee. BBC Three Counties Radio. Grunts, cadets, and the over 50s. The next 30 minutes sounds pretty darn good. Even I, if cynical me sat in my car, would uh, go, oh, turn this up. We're having some of this. 08459 455 555 is the phone number. We've got ministers for education, health, community, transport. The list goes on and on and on. But it seems there's a post that's missing. Today there are calls for a minister for ageing. Relate, the Relationship Support Organisation, say there's no coherent government strategy for coping with our increasingly ageing population and we need a minister focused on doing exactly that. It wants someone who can focus on the importance that a relationship can play in happy old age. Well, Chris Sherwood is from Relate. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Ian. How important is a relationship in old age? I think it's absolutely central to a good later life. I mean, Relate has been delivering services for 75 years and we know that relationships are at the heart of a vibrant society. But it's not just Relate that's saying that. From this research, we found that 83% of people over 50 said that their relationships with their partner, their children, their grandchildren and friends were central to a good later life. It was second only to good health and of equal importance to financial security. So relationships are absolutely central to a good later life. Why do you want a minister for the ageing and what would you like them to do? 
Well, one of the worrying statistics we saw in this research was that, you know, 20% of people over 50, almost 4 million people, lack the confidence to form new friendships and relationships. Sorry, how many people? 4 million. Wow, okay. And what we know is that, you know, an ageing society is going to cost the UK economy approximately £300 billion by 2025. The scale of the cost is going to pale in comparison to the financial crisis that we've just been through. But what we know is that relationships can play a really important part in actually mitigating some of those costs. So investing in them will deliver real benefits to the taxpayer, but also to society. If you're over 50, Chris, and you're single, what's the best way to get a date? Is it to go... Are there specific websites for older people i bet there must be um i'm sure there are um i'm i'm not a relationship counselor but um we obviously will support people to find relationships and one of the interesting things about relay is that we don't just work with couples we also work with people who are looking for love and looking for relationships we do know that dating amongst people over 50 is significantly increasing we see that in the fact that we know from this research that older people are having more sex but also we know that you know sexual health programs are not really targeting older people and a worrying trend we're seeing is that we've seen a doubling of the number of sexually transmitted diseases amongst people over 50 we do have a mini sexual health crisis going on amongst people over 50 well thank you very much for that chris chris Sherrod is uh, from relate well listen if you are 50 or over and you are single or you've been single how difficult was it for you to find a little bit of love oh wait four five nine four double five five double five i'm 40 now and thank god i'm married and hanging in there because I can't imagine having to go out and go on date. Imagine going on a first date again. Oh, man. The pressure. How do you find that person to go on that first date? Oh, if you're over 50. And if you've been single and found love, how did you do it? Can we give, let's have some optimistic stories. 08459 455 555. And because they make great radio, let's have some depressing stories as well. Let's be honest. <laughs> If you're over 50 and single and you're struggling, give us a call. 08459 555555 is the uh, telephone number uh, if you want to give us a call. We'll go to Justin Dealey in a second. There's one thing I want to just, just flag up ever so slightly, if you don't mind. The spending review yesterday. There was one thing that, that kind of got a bit lost amongst all the other announcements, I think. And I spotted this. And uh, it, it made me kind of think, oh, dear, that's interesting. As the Chancellor cut the welfare budget by 9.5%, George Osborne said benefit payments would be withheld from job seekers who can't speak English as well as a nine-year-old. He said that those who refused to take state-funded English lessons to improve their language skills wouldn't uh, benefit from benefits. Who writes this stuff? That's a great line. Who wouldn't benefit from benefits? We'll be talking to Andrew Salou later on in the programme about this. Um, and uh, we'll be asking him uh, about this and possibly about one of his tweets he may have uh, sent out yesterday. But if you can't speak English properly, should you be entitled to benefits? What do you think? 08459 455 555. Do you support that? You can't speak English. At the level of a nine-year-old, you don't get your benefits. 08459 455 555. I would just say that uh, the Brits living abroad have a very poor record of learning foreign languages, don't they? 08459 455 555. Now, yesterday, Wimbledon was as much about the noises from some players as the tennis, as Maria Sharapova crashed out of the competition to Portugal's Michelle Larcha de Brito. This. Oh, it's, and I warn you now, if you have young people, put, put, uh, put your fingers in their ears. This is what the game sounded like. <coughs> oh, 
Oh, for goodness sakes. It's just, it's just showing off, isn't it? What do you, what do you reckon to this, Dealey? I love it, personally. Oh, you would. That's, <laughs> this is your ringtone, isn't it? It's absolutely. I think it's fantastic. Bit of passion. You know, what's the problem? It's not passion, Justin. It's, it's, it's stupid women showing off. It's somebody taking the game seriously. Men, men don't do it. Well, yes, they do. They don't do it like that. Yeah, they do. No, they don't. Well, they do it like this. Now, listen, we're going to play a bit, little bit of tennis later on. Yeah. Uh, are, are we going to be grunting? Well, yes, I'm a grunter. Because, again, I'm passionate. If I'm going to play any game, whether it be football, whether it be tennis, whether it be basketball, I'm going to be passionate. And for me to get those big hitting shots in there, you are definitely going to be hearing one or two grunts. We're going to be playing tennis later. But they don't... Justin, you say it's passion. You say Mm. it it helps the sport. You don't get um, those idiot footballers grunting. and they they do. They don't grunt. grunt. You just don't hear it. That's the thing, you see. They don't grunt like that when they kick a ball. If you're taking a penalty, you might give it a quick, oh, get in there, my son. Yeah, but get, get in there, my yeah. son. That, a quick, oh, when you're kicking it. No, no, yes. no one, no one makes that grunting noise when they're kicking a football. You just don't pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because at Wimbledon, of course, if you say anything, you're thrown out. It's full of posh people. It's uh, very, very quiet in there. That's why you pick up the grunts in football. You are going to hear a few grunts, but because people are allowed to make noise and it's the people's game, you don't pick up the grunts. Come on, Tim. <laughs> quiet, please. <laughs> Yeah, that's how tennis goes. <laughs> that's how it goes. Uh, Justin, you've been looking into this very important issue this mm. morning, haven't you? Yeah, just because uh, we're so crazy, uh, <laughs> we've been out uh, hearing people's greatest oh, tennis wacky grunts. breakfast show. We are so wacky. Um, here's a collection uh, of people's grunts for you. I'm Alan from Benjo near Hartford. Alan, you've got a lot of responsibility <laughs> on your shoulder right now. Can you give us your best grunt? <laughs> Once again? <laughs> Do you feel like you look rather stupid? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, what about your grunts? Uh, three, two, one, take it away. Uh, How do you feel now? Better, thank you. <laughs> well, here's somebody else who is prepared to give us their grunts across beds, hearts and bucks. Sir, what's your name and where are you from? I'm from Neil Watson, Stansted Abbott. OK, Neil. Can we have your best tennis grunt? And make this good. Uh, wow, what on earth was that? <laughs> I think I'm now going to walk away. I'm going to run away. See you later. Well, this has been great fun this morning. Uh, Here's our last contestant, if you like, giving us a grunt. Uh, Sir, what's your name? Uh, John. John, Okay. Would you like to give us your finest tennis grunt? Yes, I would. I'll get you, butler. (laughs) 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 Wow, you get paid for this. I do. By the listeners. That's that's the thing. They're paying your wages to do this. It's amazing. That third person, quite what that grunt was all about, I don't know. But but a lot of people moaning today in the newspaper saying they should ban grunting. I have to say, if grunting was banned completely, I think tennis would be a much weaker game. But that is just my opinion. But it didn't used to happen, Justin. Virginia Wade and (laughs) Billie Jean um, and... um, 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 Chris Everett Lloyd yeah, yeah. and um, all of the other ladies from the 1970s tennis with the wooden rackets, they didn't make the... Even um, Navratilova didn't make the grunting noises. Well, come on, it's a much more powerful game these days. It's all about the power. And to get the power, sometimes you've got to give it a quick... Uh, a quick grunt. Just saying. Justin Daly, thank you very much indeed. Well, what do you think, dear listener? Did you hear the tennis last night? This was prompted. We had an email from... Uh, where is it? From Steve... 
um, who emailed us. First of all, I want to say what great coverage the BBC are doing of the Wimbledon Championships. All right, Steve, calm down. But having just watched the Sharapova and Larcher de Brito match, I cannot believe that people pay good money to hear two professional tennis players screaming and grunting at each other every time they hit the ball. It was so bad, my three-year-old son who was watching with me started to mimic the grunting, as well as asking me why they were making those noises. It is ridiculous, isn't it? We don't need it. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. There are three newspapers that I missed out. Don't forget Andrew Salou's coming on later on. We'll ask him about that tweet. It's a great tweet. It's a great tweet. Even Bob Mortimer was retweeting it. Uh, Daily Express. Um, what have we got here? Britain's gun down in paradise. Family of three die at luxury Spanish villa. A tragic family of three were found shot dead yesterday in a luxury villa on the Costa del Sol. A husband, who is thought to be British, is believed to, believed to have killed his wife and daughter, then turned the gun on himself. There's a picture of um, Andy Murray's girlfriend. Well, he's, he's batting above his average, isn't he? If he wasn't a multi-millionaire uh, tennis player, then Mr Smiles would certainly not be going out with Kim Sears. Uh, Daily Mail, Wimbledon Carnage. Well, really now, Wimbledon Carnage? There was carnage there yesterday? Uh, yes, I, I remember that Peter Crouch quote. He was asked uh, what he'd be if uh, he wasn't a successful multi-millionaire footballer. He replied, a virgin. <laughs> Daily Mail, uh, carnage at Wimbledon. It's not really carnage, is it? And Osborne takes an axe to the state. George declares war on welfare Britain. George Osborne went to war on the bloated welfare state and public sector wage bill yesterday. And uh, the son... Uh, Man of the people blunder. There's that picture, wasn't there, yesterday, of George Osborne being all, hey I'm, hey, I'm just a normal kind of guy. Hey, listen, we're all making cuts. I'm eating a burger and chips. Yeah, George, most people don't pay a tenner for their burger and chips, all right? £9.70 for his Byron burger and fries. That's a posh burger and a posh fries. There's also a picture of uh, Nigella's crate. Escape. She's moving out. Is she moving out? She's moving out of her house, possibly. And she's done it whilst using transparent plastic boxes. You would think she would have boxes. That, so we've been able to see. She's got a cannabis drink. A cannabis energy drink is part of this. It's in one of the boxes, I know. Uh, some hats. Some plastic toys. A blender. A cuddly toy. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Now the Chancellor George Osborne has admitted it's been difficult making cuts in the government spending review. He's identified eleven and a half billion pounds worth of savings across Whitehall departments to take effect in two years' time. But he told MPs it was right to take action to help reduce Britain's budget deficit. Finding savings on this scale has not been easy. These are difficult decisions that will affect people in our country. But there never was an easy way to bring spending under control. But how will these cuts affect local councils, and how will they affect you? Well, leader of Central Bedfordshire Council, uh, Conservative Councillor James Jamieson, might be able to tell us he joins us now. Morning, James. Good morning. What did you make of the spending review? It was announced, I think we all knew, that you'll take a 10% hit. How is that going to affect you? Well, we weren't surprised... But we were disappointed. Um, obviously, we've been uh, continuing to drive through efficiencies in uh, local government and in central Bedfordshire in order to support our residents uh, retaining frontline services uh, and not increasing council tax. Uh, and yet again, local government is being hit harder than anyone else. Um, local government has seen something like a 30% reduction in its funding from government. 
uh, and yet other departments on average have been around about 10%. So uh, we're, we're getting the short end of the straw on this one. Practically, what does it mean for the people of Bedfordshire? Um, well, it's a bit hard to say at the moment, because this is two years out, um, and it's, it's always the devil in the detail. You know, the last spending round central Bedfordshire was hit quite hard, whereas other councils like Luton did quite well. Um, so, you know, it, it won't be a you know, across-the-board 10% uh, cut. It will vary by council. Um, so we hope uh, we're one of the lucky ones this time. So, so that's bad news. But uh, on the other side, there was some quite good news. Uh, there's some uh, investment in infrastructure, and we hope to get our share on that. Uh, and as I was saying the other day uh, with you, uh, we're very keen on working closer with the health service um, to deliver efficiencies and deliver better services for our residents. And there was some more funding being transferred from the health service uh, into local government to look after uh, the elderly uh, and the frail. And that could be very helpful for You're us. You're doing a very good job, James, of making it, uh, you know, kind of putting a, a slightly positive spin on this. But it, it, it is going to mean obvious changes for the people of Bedfordshire, isn't it? Well, I think it's inevitable when you're left with the huge toxic debts that the Labour Party left us with, uh, that things are going to get tougher and, and the cuts are inevitable. And that's why, certainly in central Bedfordshire, we took a view two years ago that, that we had to find you know, long-term effective uh, efficiencies and, and not you know, short-term salami slicing. And we put in a place a, a number of longer-term projects to do that. It is possible to, to, you know, to, to, to blame the, the previous government, but the, the coalition have been in for quite some time now, and George Osborne's I initial predictions have been way off, haven't they? Well, it's, I think the recovery that everyone hoped for has, has not come, and it's been disappointing, and you know, one can always point to the rest of the world, but I think you've got to accept that the Labour Party is responsible for the starting position. Well, they were definitely there when it started, but, but, but Osborne predicted we'd be further along the line by now than we are so he's he's got to accept some responsibility for this this not quite working out hasn't he i think uh, i think he didn't realize just how bad it was when the labor party left you know when uh, liam Byrne, the ex-treasury minister said there was no money he wasn't joking uh 200 million pounds extra for troubled families uh, what, what do you think about that uh, that's excellent i really like the idea of troubled families we're pushing very hard on that you know, uh, if you look at the issues that we have, it's not just about people not having money. It is about dysfunctional families. Um, we're certainly working very hard with the police, the probationary service, with the health service, with the educational sector, to look at how we address troubled families. What exactly is a troubled family, Andrew? I, 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 James, sorry, I, I was confused by this. Um, it, 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 you know, there is an official definition, but, it, but effectively it, it is... In my view, a family that has multiple points of contact with the public sector. So you'll have social workers dealing with them, where you will have uh, you know, high levels of truancies, you will have, uh, let's say, experience of the law, um, you will have potential problems within the family, whether that's alcoholism, drugs, or whatever. So you will end up with a situation where you may be having 15 or 20 different people from the public sector contacting them. And we're giving them an extra £200 million? Pounds. Well, no, what, we're not doing that. This isn't about giving them extra money. This is not about um, um, ha gi giving them extra. It's about tough love. But it's also about saying, well, instead of having 20 points of contact, let's have a lead person that spends serious time with that family and helps them organise their lives. You know, it literally is to the extent of, you know, somebody knocking on their door at 8 o'clock in the morning and saying, no, no, little Johnny has to go to school uh, and getting 
uh, attendance at school. And we James, uh, sorry to cut you short. I have to end it uh, uh, there. I hope you feel you got your point. I'm sure you did. That's uh, James Jamieson, Conservative uh, councillor from Central Bedfordshire Council. 08459 555555 if you want to have your say on that. Well, one of the other announcements uh, in yesterday's spending review that might not have hit home, but it soon will, is the Chancellor George Osborne said that those claiming unemployment benefits who do not speak English will have to attend compulsory language classes or face a dock in their money. The papers this morning tell us that people will need to be able to speak English to the same standard as a nine-year-old primary school child. But should a good understanding of the language govern your access to financial help if you need it? Well, the MP for South West Bedfordshire, Andrew Salou, tweeted about this. He's in favour of it. Uh, Andrew, why is this a good idea? Well, um, first of all, good morning. Thanks for having me on. I think most taxpayers who pay for the welfare system would think it, that it was absolutely right that if they're going to pay money towards um, looking after someone while they're out of work, that that person should be able to speak um, English because you need English in order to be able to find a job and, and get into work. The, the other aspect as well is I don't want there to be any closed shops, as it were, where the workforce just speaks a foreign language. And a couple of years ago, a lady from Leighton Buzzard uh, contacted me to complain about an advert in Leighton Buzzard for picker-packers on the minimum wage, and the requirement was you had to speak Polish. Well, that really made my blood boil, and I got the advert stopped, and I raised it, raised it in Parliament. But it is really, really important that all jobs are open to uh, people who, who speak English. I don't want any places of work, warehouses or factories or... Um, any place of work where um, English isn't uh, spoken. Well, of course, that, and that, you know, th- that, that does make sense, that you can't exclude people who don't speak English, but is it not a little bit unfair to say you have to speak English to um, claim your benefits? No, I think it's entirely fair and reasonable to say that you should be taking steps in order to help get you back to work to be able to speak English to an acceptable standard so you can understand what your boss is asking you to do, what your colleagues are asking you to do. I mean, how is it possible to find work and stay in work if you don't speak English? Well, I, mean, supposing I, you sp- I, mean, I mean, isn't this blindingly obvious? No, I, mean, I, no, I, I, I would suggest, Andrew, that it is possible. For example, if, if uh, you are a, a, a native Urdu or Hindi speaker, you don't speak English, you could still find work where your employer would speak Urdu or Hindi. Yeah, but how restrictive is that? I mean, that really is a route to ghettoization. Is that well, no, really the sort of country that we want? No, it's not, you... is it? Because that, that, supposing, I'm generalising, supposing I'm an Indian gentleman, I own an Indian restaurant, I speak uh, Urdu, I could employ English speakers, and I could employ people who only speak Urdu. Yeah, but what about when your customers come in? I mean, I'm sorry, I, I, well, if I really they work think... In, if they're working in the kitchen, it doesn't matter, does well, it? Well, yeah, but, you know, what about community cohesion? What about us being one country where we can all understand each well, other? Well, that's a, that's a different on? thing, I mean, isn't look, it? Yes. I mean, this is, this is taxpayers, you know, um, paying money in order for people to find work. And I think it is reasonable that we should expect job seekers to take um, uh, proper steps in order to, to try and help them find work. And I, I'm sorry, but I really do think that um, speaking English to a basic standard or, or, or trying to learn to speak English um, should be a requirement for, for people to be for people to be paid in order to get their job seekers allowance. Andrew, you, you did give uh, the whole of the internet... A I bit did. Of, a I bit know. of a giggle I'm yesterday. Sorry. Hands you... up. I believe in proper spelling. I left out an R. I was wrong. The I'm irony sorry. of tweeting I about should... how people should be I... learning to uh... speak English. For those who missed it, you did tweet <laughs> that uh, you strongly support the loss of benefits unless claimants lean English. I left out an R. I'm sorry. I should have checked it. Hands up. I got it wrong. I believe in correct spelling. I've raised the issue of spelling quite often, particularly schools who. Uh, 
uh, won't correct people's spelling. So I was very pleased that other people corrected me. I stand corrected. I believe in proper spelling. You deleted the tweet, Andrew. Why did you do that? Well, <laughs> I, I, I could re- I, I well, because it was incorrect. I mean, it, uh, you know, but um, I'm, I've come on your programme to talk about it now. I'm not resiling from the issue. No. I, I think it's an, an important issue. Um, because I want to be a nation where we all get on, we can all understand each other, um, we're not living in separate worlds where we don't speak each other's languages, and I think that the broad mass of taxpayers who pay for the welfare system would think that was right and proper. And will you be having someone proofreading your tweets from now on, Andrew? I will take more care. I'm very sorry Good I lad. got it wrong. Andrew Salute, thank you very much indeed. Well, what do you think? Do you agree with Andrew that uh, you should learn English? to uh, uh, the level of a nine-year-old before you can claim your benefits? 08459 455 555. Morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. If you're wondering what my beef is, my beef is coffee. No, hang on, is that what it means? No. Why, I'm a little bit hyper. There's some good coffee going around. Do drink the brown coffee. Here every weekday morning between 6 and 9. And if you miss the show, you can listen again on iPlayer or or you can download the podcast. There is a podcast, about 45 minutes long. comes out every Friday. There are four out so far. Go to iTunes, type in Ian Lee, I-A-I-N-L-E-E, BBC. comes up, you subscribe. Wonderful. Some of the things we're talking about between now and nine include are abusive and violent teenage relationships more common than we think? The father of a Bedfordshire teenager has spoken publicly for the first time about coping with the death of 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete. She was murdered by her boyfriend in June last year. Changes to the benefits system announced yesterday by George Osborne mean you'll have to be able to speak English to at least the level of a nine-year-old before you can claim your benefits. What do you think? Do you agree with that? And as Wimbledon clatters on, do you think that this is acceptable? Oh, dear. No, those aren't grunting wild boar. Those are women playing a game. Facebook.com forward slash BBC 3CR. Send me a text if you want, 81333, start your text 3CR. Or, and this is the best way, you've been quiet on the phone today, what's wrong for goodness sakes? 08459 455 555. Across beds, hearts and bucks. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. The father of a Bedfordshire teenager who was murdered by her boyfriend has spoken publicly for the first time about life without her. 15-year-old Megan Lee Pete from Westerning was stabbed to death by 18-year-old Andrew Hall from Flittick. He's now serving 15 years in jail after pleading guilty to her murder. David Pete has organised a self-defence class to teach youngsters to protect themselves against violence. He's described his daughter as a bright, bubbly chatterbox, a typical teenage girl who was so full of life. The hardest thing is not seeing her, not talking to her, just having no contact and, and just thinking about the circumstances. The decision was taken out of my hands, her hands. It wasn't an illness, you know. Somebody made the conscious decision to take her life. And that's, that's a hard thing to live with. Just taking each day as it comes, now it's, it's been, a, been a long, hard process. Well, the NSPCC say nearly 75% of girls and 50% of boys have reported some sort of emotional partner abuse or physical violence. 
Well, this morning we're asking, are violent teenage relationships more common than we think? Maybe you're worried about your child or your grandchild. You've seen things that make you think, hang on a second, this doesn't look normal and healthy. You can give us a call, 08459 455 555, or text me, 81333. Start your text, 3CR. Marshall Wood is from Bristol University and has led research reports on violence in teenage relationships. Good morning, Marsha. 50% of boys have reported abuse, and we do tend to think uh, that it's mainly girls who are the victims, so that's not right, is it? Um, well, yes, that, that is the case. Um, and when you're talking about the 50%, you're actually talking about the emotional partner violence because there's um, a number of you know, different types of violence. So physical partner um, violence, it's actually 18% of boys that reported some form of physical partner violence, and boys um, reported, 50% of boys reported emotional partner violence. But when we, when, we, um, when we talk about it, it's very important to think about the impact on the young people. So when boys are reporting this, quite often in the, in the survey that we undertook, we then asked them um, how that made them feel. And often the boys would say, you know, that they thought it was funny and things like that, whereas the girls would actually say that they felt very scared or upset. So it's quite a big difference in the, in the impact of the violence. But I mean, girls were were more likely to experience all forms of violence. We're talking about physical partner violence, emotional violence, and sexual partner violence. In terms of, of the emotional uh, uh, violence, I'm guessing with things like Facebook and Twitter and all these, and, and texting and all of this, there are so many different ways that, that this, this emotional bullying can be carried out now. Yes, that's true. I mean, we're undertaking a new study now to look at the role of new technologies, such as, you know, mobile phones and social networking sites in instigating and maintaining control and violence in young people's relationships. And, um, you know, at the moment, this is an area that's not really very well explored. So that's something that we're looking at now. And, it's, and you know, we, when young people go home in the evenings, they've got the computers and you know, so there's kind of no escape from the violence. So it's a, it's, it's a different dimension that we need to take into account. In, um, kind the of thing I'm learning this morning, Marsha, and the thing that is confusing me is that young teenagers, and we've heard reports of, you know, people as young as 13, 14, 15, questioning whether this mental abuse and this physical abuse is a normal part of a relationship. Yes, I mean, I think that's why we need to educate young people, and that is so important, because it's not acceptable to be emotionally abusive to your partner, and that can often, you know, lead to turn into, you know, physical violence. And I think it is is something that's very hard for people in general to recognise in their relationships, and particularly for young people where the topic of kind of relationship violence hasn't really been discussed until recently. Where are they learning that? Why is there confusion about violence in a relationship? To me, it's always been if someone hits you, that's violent, you you get out. Why is this this confusion? Is it TV? Is it families? Where's it coming from? Um, Well, we do. One of the factors is that, you know, if young people are in um, families where there is a history of violence in the family, then, you know, that can maybe be something that becomes seen as something more normal. And that, and that we have, that did show in our survey to be a factor that meant that young people were more likely to experience violence in their relationships. But then it's, you know, it's not always the case. Some of the young people would say that they'd witnessed it within their family and that they would, you know, that meant that they were definitely not going to be violent in their own relationships because they thought it was so terrible. But, you know, it's, 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 it is hard to know where it came from, but it's not. We have to say, you know, this is the first time it was being measured when we undertook our survey, so we don't know if it's a new phenomenon or if it's been going on for a long time. But I think for young people, it's just not something that was necessarily been, you know, brought to the agenda until recently. Domestic violence has always been thought of something that occurs between adults and not necessarily between young people. If there's uh, some 15, 16, 17-year-old kid slapping his girlfriend around, is there, is there any hope for that young boy? Um, well, there are... Perp- you know, programs for perpetrators, and I and I would definitely say, you know, with the, with the right education and support, then I think there is hope for that 
for that young boy. I think that, you know, if, if they can learn early enough, then they won't go on to their adult life, you know, being like that. So I think that, you know, with you know, with the right education and support, that I think that there is hope. We've seen a very high-profile campaign on our TVs about teenagers and relationship violence. Uh, is that because the Home Office identified that there was a real problem? Yeah, from, our, from the results of our survey, they did take it on board that there was a real problem, and then they, um, they brought out the adverts that you've probably seen on TV, and there's a, um, a website called This Is Abuse, which they um, also got, which is really important for young people, and I'd encourage young people to, to look at that website so that they can understand more about this issue. Uh, Marsha, thanks very much. That's Marsha Wood from Bristol University, who has uh, led research reports on violence in teenage relationships. Well, if uh, your um, child or your grandchild is involved in a, a violent relationship, give us a call. Do let us know. You can change names and locations, of course. 08459 455 555. Text 81333. Start your message with 3CR. Text will be charged at the standard network rate. BBC Three Counties Radio. The Chancellor, George Osborne, uh, said in yesterday's spending review that those claiming unemployment benefits who do not speak English will have to attend compulsory language classes or face a dock in their money. The papers this morning tell us that people will need to be able to speak English to the same standard as a nine-year-old at primary school. But should a good understanding of the language govern your access to financial help if you need it? The MP for South West Bedfordshire, Andrew Salou, is in favour of it. This is what he told me earlier. What about community cohesion? What about us being one country where we can all understand each well, other? Well, that's a, that's a different thing, I mean, isn't look, it? Yes. I mean, this, is, this is taxpayers, you know, um, paying money in order for people to find work. And I think it is reasonable that we should expect job seekers to take um, uh, proper steps in order to, to try and help them find work. And I, I'm sorry, but I really do think that um, speaking English to a basic standard or, or, or trying to learn to speak English um, should be a requirement for, for people to be for people to be paid in order to get their job seekers allowed. Well, what do you think? Should you have to speak English to the level of a nine-year-old uh, to be able to receive benefits? 08459 455 555. You can send me a text as well, like Lee from Sandy has done. Uh, he says, Ian, regarding your benefits debate and being able to claim benefits and your comment regarding the British being ignorant and not being able to speak the language of the country they moved to, it's quite simple to see that this government is too soft at giving out benefits. And do other countries offer the same benefit system? No! Well, you can send me a text, 81333. Start your text, uh, 3CR. Put your name on and um, we uh, may read it out. You can also go to the Facebook page as well. Some of you have done facebook.com forward slash uh, bbc 3cr he said jumping to the facebook page only to find that his slow bbc computer had frozen and was not allowing him to access the facebook page aren't computers wonderful well jvs will be uh, carrying on this debate a little bit uh, later on after nine is it a good idea to deny benefits to people who can't speak english you can start calling him now 08459 455 555 nope that's it the computer's died computer's dead we have a dead computer here, dear listener. The BBC computers, that are f we only have them because of the unique way the BBC is funded. Uh, as uh, the computer has died on me. Well, isn't that, isn't that a shame? 08459 455 555 is the telephone number. If you want to give me a call, you can send me a text. 81333. Start your text. Uh, 3CR. Uh, ah, it's working. Sing Hosannas. Uh, Gary says, people that come to this country should only be able to claim benefits after 10 years. Even if they do speak English or not, we are the only country that gives out benefits like they are sweets. 
sweets. I, I wouldn't say they were like sweets, Gary. I don't know if you've ever signed on. I have. It was horrible. It was humiliating. It was horrible. It took ages for it to kick in. Uh, Michael says, I have no trouble with this. I would not expect to travel abroad to work or seek financial help as I can only speak English. Um, and Denise says, I is chilling in my crib in it like YOLO. I think that's her speaking like a nine-year-old. I, th- I think you've misunderstood it slightly, Denise. It's not quite what they mean. But, but, but good effort, good effort. Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Stop it! Oh! Oh, you scare me when you do that. Those are my sporting noises. I'm not <laughs> saying for which sport. <laughs> Did you hear that yesterday? Yes. Absolutely disgusting. What are those silly it's women thinking? over the top. It's one of the reasons I'm not very keen on going to the gym, because you get those big muscle men. Oh, you do. And they do all these silly noises, and I, I find myself giving them my looks. Mm. I look at them as if to say, you don't have to make that noise, you no. silly man. If you, is that the only reason you don't go to the gym? Well, it's one of the excuses I use. <laughs> Shall we put it like that? I joined the gym around here um, earlier in the year. I've been five times. <laughs> five, five times. times. So that's what that, it's cost me about seventy pounds a session. Oh, don't no, don't even it? talk to me about. Uh, I mean, I'm paying every month. Yep. I'm not going, and my waistline's getting bigger and bigger. I just can't be bothered. It's such a faff, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. It a faff. is, and the changing room stinks. Ooh. People stink at the gym. Yeah, I mean, frankly, they do. Some of the men who go to gyms, you know, they they work out, yep. and then they. Stink of BO. Yeah, yeah. And then they come in the change room and you're trying to get changed and they strip off and you get this awful smell. Oh, I can't bear it. It's just a hideous experience. I'm, well, I'm, I'm certainly never going again. I think they should all be, it should be routine that any smelly people at the gym are sprayed liberally with TCP. <laughs> I miss the smell of TCP. You don't get, you don't get that anymore. You do where I live. One of my neighbours uses TCP, and I can smell it through her front door. Producer Tara, who I know you have uh, previous experience with. Oh, yes. And uh, I wish you'd warned me in advance. Look at that. <laughs> you should have done, and shame on you for not. We'll discuss that later. She's got a picture of a very muscular gentleman on uh, her computer. And boy, oh, boy, isn't that, uh, isn't that a sight to behold? That is the kind of man that makes grunting noises. Yeah. Oh! Oh, don't. Oh! And then they drop their weights on the floor, <laughs> just so everyone knows how much they've been lifting. Woo, yeah. But, um, yes. So, what's coming up on your show this morning? Jason? Well, I'm very interested in this uh, story you've been talking about this morning, this idea of uh, withholding benefits to people who can't speak good English. From nine this morning on the big phone-in, I'm going to be asking, is it a good idea to deny benefits to people who can't speak English? The Chancellor, George Osborne, has told benefit claimants they need to speak English as well as a nine-year-old, which is actually, uh, when you think about it, nine-year-olds can speak very good English. Nine-year-olds are excellent. Very good English. Mm. Um, either they, they speak English to that level or they lose their payments conservative mp for southwest bedfordshire andrew salu who you were speaking to um he was saying that it was essential to creating a better workforce and a more integrated britain well from nine this morning i want to know whether all of this is necessary i mean to speak english as well as a nine-year-old is very fluent Mm. now to be honest do we really need people to be speaking english to that level to get jobs because this is what it's all about is now i mean someone who's claiming benefits the idea is that it's just a short-term stopgap until they find a job but the chances are lots of people who don't speak very good english they can find jobs in this country i mean for example um i take my car to be cleaned and it's mainly eastern europeans who work at this particular place where they clean my car they do a brilliant job they 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 are so hard working 
But to be absolutely honest, I'm not sure whether any of them can speak English to the level of a nine-year-old. Mm. Does it matter? They clean the cars well, they contribute, they pay tax, they do everything else. Does it really matter if they don't speak English as well as a nine-year-old to clean cars? From nine this morning, is it a good idea to deny benefits to people who can't speak English? We'll discuss it on the big phone-in. Call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, the proposed budget for the HS2 railway, which would go through Buckinghamshire, has risen by nearly £10 billion to more than £40 billion. The Transport Minister, Patrick McLaughlin, revealed the figure yesterday. He told the Commons the new project, uh, projected cost of £42.6 billion, up from £33 billion, would include a large contingency fund. Well, Alison Monroe is the HS2 Limited Chief Executive and joins me now. Morning, Alison. Why has the budget estimate risen? Uh, well, good morning. Um, well, since the government gave the go-ahead to High Speed 2 in January last year, we've done an enormous amount of work, um, which has allowed us to produce a more robust uh, design and cost estimate for the project. So there have been some um, additional provisions that we've made, for example, well, more tunnelling um, in the North Holt area and near Birmingham. £10 billion pounds more is, 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 is quite an additional cost, isn't it? But, it? but in addition to that, as you noted and as the Secretary of State said yesterday, um, because we have now moved to talking about a funding provision rather than just a cost estimate, um, the government is taking a more conservative approach in terms of how much we need to allow for risk and contingency. So the figure that was announced yesterday, the, the £42.6 billion, for the entire wire network. That includes a much larger amount for uh, contingency. In fact, it includes £14.4 billion for contingency. So it's gone up up by £10 billion, Alison. What are the chances of it going up again? Pretty high, I'd imagine. Um, No, as the Secretary of State said again yesterday, it's absolutely important now that we've got a much firmer and more robust estimate, and now we really need to control the cost. So, Alison, are are you saying, because we will clip this, and I I don't want to get you back in six months and play this to you again, are you saying that this this, uh, new cost of £42.6 billion, that's it, it won't go any higher than that? Well, what this £42.6 billion figure is saying... Are you saying saying that's it and it won't go any higher than that? What what it's saying is that there's a 5% chance uh, that we might exceed that figure. So there's a very... We're we're very confident that we can... What does that that mean? I don't know what that means. There's a 5% Um, chance. So we we have a 95% certainty, not 100% certainty, but 95% certainty that that figure is enough. Hedging your bets, Um, aren't you? well, I mean, it's very, I mean, no one will ever say that something is 100% certain, but the important thing is that the Secretary of State has given us a very challenging target. Where do you get the figure of 95% that. from? How, how did you come about with that? Um, well, there, there are um, uh, well-established techniques to estimate the risks of projects, and um, we've gone through a very thorough process. What are they? So, um, they, well, they, they use complicated um, modelling techniques where you look at all right. of the risks on the project and quantify those. OK, so you c- the figure that's got with so this is you're 95% certain this will not go above £42.6 billion. Pounds. Th- that, that's right. Excellent. And but beyond that, we are being set a more challenging target. So we in High Speed 2 Limited have been given a target uh, for Phase 1 of £17.16 billion, um, which only allows us a 10% contingency. Okay. So we are under very strong um, incentives to make sure that we don't, uh, we don't actually use all of that contingency that's in the 42.6 But there, billion. Th- there is a 5% is chance it may go above 40. So there is a chance it might go even higher than 42.6. There's a very small chance, but actually it's much more likely that we will come in below the 42.6. Is it true they didn't... That's very much our intention. Is it true what I'm reading? They didn't factor in the cost of the trains? 
we've always taken account of the cost of the trains, but they've been accounted for separately. So when we've looked at the business cases, ah. we've always included... So smoke and mirrors. It's been, it's been a little bit of um, smoke and mirrors if the trains no, were accounted no, separately. No, it's not, it's not smoke and mirrors. It's just making sure that you identify what the relevant costs are. The so cost the trains the hadn't been... Just to clarify, when it was yesterday, when the figure was £32 billion, the trains weren't included in that £32 billion? The, the trains aren't included in, in, the, in the £32 billion, but we have always had a figure for the... And they are included in the £42 billion? No, they're not included in the £42 billion. The, the, the trains um, are, in addition to that, and the estimate for those is seven, seven and a half billion pounds. And so hang on, hang on, hang on, Alison, hang yes. on a second. Yes. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it's £50 billion. <laughs> so no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not suddenly. These how can you keep the train separate? How can you keep the cost of the train separate from the cost of the HS2 project? Surely the trains for this train line, their cost is part of the HS2 project. And, and yes. I, would, I would imagine that most people listening to this, using a complicated formula, 95% of the people listening to this would have expected the trains to be part of that cost. We've always, been, we've always shown the cost of the trains. They've been identified as a separate item. So we've been hiding absolutely nothing. Why would you but not include say, that? Why would you include it as a separate item? The HS2 project is a rail project. The trains, I've always assumed, I'm sure most of the listeners have always assumed, that the trains were part of that cost. That, so suddenly, HS2 has gone from £32 billion yesterday, extra £10 billion that was announced yesterday, and now the trains, it, it's £50 billion. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. It's embarrassing, isn't it? No, that's not the case, because the cost of the trains has always been in the public domain. We've been entirely open about the cost of the trains. We've we've been clear about the cost of delivering the infrastructure and the cost of delivering the trains. But as I say, the important thing going forward is that we make sure that we control the project within those cost limits. This project's yesterday, out of control, isn't yes, it, Alison? But yesterday, you know, we had um, in, the, in the House of Parliament um, the first chance for MPs to vote on this project, and they v- voted overwhelmingly in favour of it. The project's and, out and of control, isn't it? The project isn't out of control. We're at a very early stage. We now have a very robust um, estimate going forward. But why was the estimate before? Why was, why was the estimate before not robust enough? Well, as we go forward with a project, this is a massive project. We have we do more design as we go uh, forward. Alison, Alison, I'm really I'm really sorry, but there, there are people listening to this whose whose homes and lives and businesses and houses will be affected. To suddenly say, oh, now this this plan is more robust. Now we've thrown an extra ten billion pounds at it. It wasn't very robust two days ago, but now it's more robust. An extra ten billion pounds. There will be some people who will be laughing and saying that's ridiculous. Well, this is normal procedure for for major project like this. That when you move to looking at how much you need to provide for funding, you add ten billion you, pounds to it. You, you you need to provide you need to provide a contingency to make sure that you've got sufficient funds. But to why cover. wasn't that part of the original thing? I don't understand why this extra ten billion pounds has suddenly been put on top of it. An extra ten billion pounds that you've admitted yourself there is a chance we might overspend on. Well, there's, as I say, it's highly unlikely. We are very much expecting that we will not actually use all of the contingency. People listening to this were very much expecting yesterday this will cost £33 billion. Now they're being told it's going to cost £43 billion. £50 billion now we factor in the train. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Well, we don't, we don't ex- as I say, we don't expect to use all of that contingency. But the benefits of the project are clear. Um, we are behind other countries in terms of our transport infrastructure HS2 is really seen as, as the engine for growth. It, the, By some people. By some people. 
Well, by the middle of the next decade, parts of the existing railway are essentially going to be full, and that will provide a break on economic growth. So we need to do something about our transport infrastructure. Alison, we have to end it there. Thank you very much indeed. Alison Munro, HS2 Limited Chief Executive. They've uh, reached the figure that they're 95% likely they will not go over the £42.6 billion spend using a, a series of very complicated formulas that will be too complicated for you to understand, I'm sure. I really thought, am I being naive and stupid? When it was £33 billion yesterday, I assumed that included the cost of the trains. I, 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 is that just me being stupid? If you're at home laughing now, going, oh, Ian, you muppet. No, of course, we all knew that the trains weren't included. The trains that'll cost you £7 billion, they, were, they weren't included in the £33 billion price. 08459 am, am I an idiot? Was it, was it obvious the trains weren't included in that original price? 81333, start your text 3CR. Just put idiot if you think that, that if you knew that the trains weren't factored into that price. Call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Taking your calls on should you have to speak English to get benefits. And did you know that the uh, £7 billion cost of the trains wasn't factored into the £33 billion HS2 cost, which had risen to £42 billion? That still doesn't include the cost of the trains. Did you know that? Is it, was that me being stupid and naive? 08459 455 555 is the telephone number. Now, we've spoken today about the problems at the East of England Ambulance Trust, which has faced criticism of the service's performance and management structure. MPs have called for resignations from the board. Well, yesterday, a non-executive director resigned, and we can bring you some exclusive breaking news. Another has resigned today. Uh, Margaret Stockham, former chief executive of the NHS in Bedfordshire and a board member, has stepped down and in her first interview joins me now. Margaret, why did you make the decision to step down. Good morning Ian and good morning to your listeners. Um, I stepped down um, with a very heavy heart and after very very careful consideration because I had genuinely believed up until the last couple of days that I was part of, could be part of the solution, things were starting to turn around and the performance was improving. But the focus has become unrelentingly on us as individuals, our photographs in newspapers, our profile on the television. And when the, the focus of all the attention is on us, not on the very important issues of improving patient care, getting um, an ambulance resource to uh, a person in need as soon as possible, that's very unhelpful. And so I've stepped down in order that there can be um, a reconstitution of the board um, and perhaps a bit of space created uh, now that uh, at least two of us are not the issue. And um, the, the trust can get on with the business of, of really turning things about. Margaret, when did you make the decision? I made the decision um, before the board yesterday and had had a, a, um, a word with the chair, but um, you do what you do. I, I was at the board meeting, I was testing and asking things, I was responding as I would always respond in order to make sure that the decisions made at yesterday's board, which are the ones that take uh, the organisation forward, um, were made properly. Um, it's not about me, as I said, it's all about 
about the organisation and the service it provides to local patients. If you feel, Margaret, like you say, that you, you, you could have made a change and you were starting to make a change, wouldn't it have been better for the trust for someone like you to stay and see those changes to completion? You're absolutely right, somebody like me. That's precisely it. There are just some times in public service, in public life, where you have to look, not at yourself, but you have to look at um, whether uh, somebody else could do an equally good or even a better job. I'm not sure better on this occasion, but others will judge that uh, with the hindsight of time. Um, and I had become the issue along with my colleagues, and therefore I felt it was the right thing to do. I also have to say that as Vice Chairman of MIND, uh, which I'm very passionate about, the mental health charity, and one or two other um, local um, organisations that I'm involved in, in as well, I didn't want them tainted by association with me and my name because uh, that would have been just um, unacceptable. Richard Bacon, a Conservative, Norman Lamb, Liberal Democrat MP, Therese Coffey, uh, Kofi, Conservative MP, and Priti Patel, Conservative MP, have all asked uh, uh, for you and your, your colleagues to step down. Do you feel that you were hounded by those MPs? I'm not sure hounded was the right word. MPs have a job to do. They, uh, they were, those particular MPs um, were working extremely hard to support what they felt was unacceptable performance of the trust in their patch. And indeed, it was unacceptable. I agree. Um, the overperformance, the very, very um, quick response in Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire has been holding up the, uh, the slower responses in uh, Suffolk and Norfolk, such that until December last year, when we got results county by county rather than across the whole patch, it wasn't clear that, uh, that the response times were so low in their patch. So I'm not going to criticise them for doing what they should do. I think um, the only thing is that it shouldn't have become so personal. You've, um, you've not been there that long, Margaret. I think, you, was it September that you joined? I joined last July, but I was in a sort of induction period and there's no board meeting in August. So, um, yes, in effect, I started to work properly from was September. That, was that really long enough to have any impact? Do you, do you feel that you, you've left too early to, to have made a, a change? Um, I wasn't part of some of the longer-term strategic decisions, but I was part of some of the, uh, the recovery plan issues. Um, I hope that I've done some work in um, business development. I chaired that subcommittee. I'm absolutely sure that um, I've helped to connect the board with some of the frontline services. I was out in Essex for the whole day, the day before last, um, with some fabulous staff around Southend and, and Rayleigh and popped into South End Hospital to see exactly how the whole system was working. I've been into HEOC. I've had night and daytime ride outs in Kempston. And they're not just about me finding out what goes on. They are actually about telling staff how the system works and, and how they should get their views up to board level. And, um, and indeed, some staff have taken the opportunity to do that in the past. So I've done my bit in, in, in some small way. Um, and uh, I wish the Trust absolutely Absolutely every um, best wish for the future and for a speedy turnaround. Is the pressure now on your three, um, well, former colleagues, Paul Remington, Phil Barlow and Anne Osborne, to step down? I think they will have to do what they need to do. I, I know that Phil was off on holiday today. 
um, immediately after the board meeting, and actually Paul wasn't able to attend the meeting yesterday because he was uh, abroad. So um, I haven't been able to speak to Paul. Um, I, I don't know what they're thinking, but they will be doing just as much deep thinking and, and worrying about this as I have done over the past um, two or three weeks, or indeed more than two or three weeks. It's it, blood on the carpet. Um, it's a new era. Richard Bacon, I mentioned earlier, the Conservative in Norfolk, said the staff of the Trust were lions led by donkeys. Margaret, how, how does it feel to be described as a donkey? I'm quite fond of donkeys. I think they get a really hard press, but I'm not one of them. I'm a fan of donkeys, but I certainly am not a donkey. And as you quite kindly said um, earlier in the interview, um, you know, I worked in, in Bedfordshire. I, I left a legacy of some really good stuff in Bedfordshire when I decided to, to leave after six years or so. Um, and I think um, people that know me, local people, will, will make their own judgments. Margaret, thank you very much for, for speaking to us first. Uh, the first interview. I appreciate that. That's uh, Margaret Stockham, former chief executive of the NHS in Bedfordshire and uh, a board member of the East of England Ambulance Trust, who has just announced that she's stepping down. And that was her first interview. Call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. So just to clarify, yesterday, HS2 cost £32 billion. Today... It's costing £42 billion, but that doesn't include the £7.5 billion for the trains. So it's £50 billion. Now, now, it was, I spoke to a lady from HS2, Alison Munro, earlier, who said, oh, no, no, we've always said that the cost of the trains, the £7.5 billion, was separate. We, we've always said that. That was, that was, people knew that. I didn't know that. Now, I don't, I don't know everything. I know, surprising, but I don't. Did you know that? Did you know the cost of the trains for the HS2 project were separate from the £33 billion, now £43 billion pounds that, that have been mentioned? Am I an idiot, is what I'm asking. You can text 81333, start your text 3CR. Uh, if, if you knew that, then just text the word idiot. Don't text the word idiot just because you fancy calling me an idiot. It's specifically about this subject, please. Or you can give me a, a, a call, 08459 455 555. Another thing you're calling in about today is uh, George Osborne's announcement yesterday that if you want benefits, well, you've got to speak English to the level of a nine-year-old. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Uh, Albert's in Chesham. Uh, Albert, what do you think? Should you be able to speak English to the level of a nine-year-old to be able to claim benefits? Well, I don't know, but in my experience, I work in meat. Uh, I work for Mighty Meaty in Slough, and uh, there's lots of us working together, and we're all different nationalities. We've got Asian, we've got Indians, we've got English people. I'm from Yorkshire. We've, got, we've even got an Inuit uh, gentleman, um, and he doesn't speak to even the level of a, a reception child. And are, are there any problems there, Albert? Not at all, because, I mean, what we tend to do is gesticulate. So, so, like, my friend Abdul, he'll pick up, like, leg of lamb or something, and he'll wave it at me, and then I'll know it's time to put the BCR on it. Uh, I work on the, on the BCR, on the, on the blood collection receptacle. But you, you know, you get a piece of meat and you turn it upside down and there's something on bottom of it. Yes. That's BCR. We call it meat nappies. What a, so, what a glamorous lifestyle you're leading. It it's great. So I put meat nappies on it, and, uh, and then I give him the thumbs up. And then he wraps it in clean film. We bring it on the truck. And and what sign language? What sign language do you use with the Inuit gentleman, Albert? Uh, a clubbing motion, usually. And what and what what would that mean? 
Uh, well, I bring my right hand down from head height to about waist level, as harsh as I can, and he knows what that means. He means it's time to chop meat up. OK, and, and it, that's his job, is the meat chopping. So you get the meat nappies, and yep. the Inuit chap does the, uh, the, the meat chopping. That's it. And, and what, we all d- work together. Yeah, and, and what's the Inuit gentleman's name? I, d- I don't know any Inuit names. He's got a real name, Kaiba. Kaiba. Kaiba, as in Kaiba Plus. I don't know why, because that would be Indian, but it's, it's, that's his name. Is, is I've never met Inuit before. I think it's some sort of exchange programme we got. Right, right. Is it, it, is probably working in the Antarctic right now. Well, it's it's amazing that that works, Albert, so successfully for you in the uh, in the meat industry, and I, I I think maybe you you've you brought a little bit of optimism to our lives. Oh, I'm glad to hear that, Albert. Take care. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's Albert uh, in Cheshire there, who uh, fits meat nappies. Thanks very much indeed. Hello, good morning to you. Um, Sorry, Sarah, that was me. I was I was um, experimenting with feedback. I will not be doing that again. Well, I think it was successful, wasn't it? It was a su- successful experiment in that the yeah. results indicated, don't do it again. <laughs> That's your weather. Thank you very much, Sarah Thornton. Now, one of the many announcements in yesterday's spending review might not have hit home yet, but it soon will. The Chancellor, George Osborne, said that those claiming unemployment benefits who do not speak English will have to attend compulsory language classes or face a dock in their money. The papers this morning tell us that people will need to be able to speak English to the same standard as a nine-year-old primary school uh, pupil. But should a good understanding of the language govern your access to financial help if you need it? The MP for South West Bedfordshire, Andrew Salou, is in favour of it. This is what he told me earlier on in the show. What about community cohesion? What about us being one country where we can all understand each well, other? That's a, that's and a different thing, I mean, isn't look, it? Yes. I mean, this, is, this is taxpayers, you know, um, paying money in order for people to find work. And I think it is reasonable that we should expect job seekers to take um, uh, proper steps in order to, to try and help them find work. And I, I'm sorry, but I really do think that um, speaking English to a basic standard or, or, or trying to learn to speak English um, should be a requirement for, for, people to be, for people to be paid in order to get their job seekers allowed. Well, you can give me a call, 08459 455 555. JVS will be talking about this as well. Is it a good idea to deny benefits to people who can't speak English? If you start calling now, we can queue you up for, for his show. Or if you're really good, we might pinch you. He can have, a, he can have our dregs. Uh, well, Justin Dealey has been in Luton getting your reaction. Justin, what have people been saying to you? Still trying to get over that call from about ten minutes ago. Oh, it's okay, because we have sign language here. The meat nappy, yeah, gentlemen. The meat nappy. I mean, is that what people are willing to put up with in, in this country? It's okay, it because seems we've got to sign work, language. It works for him when he does a, a, a chopping motion to the Inuit <sighs> gentleman, Kyber. Incredible. He, the, the, he goes off and chops up meat. It's <laughs> a fascinating call, but um, some interesting views in Luton as well. I've been asking people, if you can't speak a good standard of English, should you still be entitled to benefits? And this is what people had to say. I'd say it depends. It depends on circumstances, what people are claiming for. I don't necessarily believe that language is a barrier to people receiving benefits. No. Because why, if they can't stand English, why should they go down and claim money? If they can't stand English, how can they know about money? How does it make you feel when you walk through Lucent and you hear a whole selection of foreign languages? Annoying. Very annoying. You don't know if they're talking about you. <laughs> it's horrible. I think, yes, you should be entitled to receive them, but more courses should be available to help people, enable people to speak English. 
so more help should be out there more funding to actually enable people to, to speak the language because it's probably quite intimidating for them as they come over I mean, I'm shocked personally at the amount of people who cannot speak English who are here in Luton. Are you? Have you also noticed that yourself? Yeah, I think I think in Luton, I think they've made it far too easy to not learn English. You know, it's it's because obviously the, the, the multiracial sort of communities here, they're very sort of within their own little groups, and I think it's far too easy for them not to. Justin, have you spoken to anybody who, who's come to the UK? Yes, I had a conversation with a Polish member of the community. Now, it didn't last very long. This is uh, quite an uncomfortable listen, but um, take a listen to this. But tell me, you're living in Luton, but you're from Poland. Let me ask you this question. Can you speak good English? No. No, not really. <laughs> okay. Do you think, despite the fact you can't speak good English... Do you think that you should still be entitled to receive benefits in this country? Uh, I don't understand the question. Sorry. Have you been working on your English at all since you've been here? Sorry? Are you trying to learn our language? Yeah, I try. How long have you lived in Luton for? Four years. Well, four years? Mm-hmm. Or maybe he didn't understand the question. Quite possibly, but I mean, <laughs> you, you take the mickey out of me for saying me no speak English when I often say that quote to you. But, again, I'm talking to you here from, from a personal level, what I can see, I'm out and about day in, day out, particularly in Luton. I find it frustrating, actually, the amount of people who cannot speak English. This is Luton, this is Luton in Bedfordshire, Luton, Bedfordshire, England, and the amount of people who cannot speak English I find absolutely incredible. Uh, do we know if that gentleman you spoke to, who'd been here for four years, did, was he working? Was he signing up? The reason I ask is, we had lots of Polish gentlemen uh, when we had some building done in our flat. Hmm. Uh, the foreman could speak English. The foreman could speak several languages. He was Polish, but he could speak several languages. He was brilliant. Most of the lads couldn't speak English, but there was no need for them to speak English. But it's England, isn't it? I mean, you had, we had a conversation there with somebody who was off to work this morning. Um, I don't quite know what he's doing because we couldn't really have a conversation together. Uh, these are people, as Andrew Salou was saying earlier on, how are we all supposed to get on? One of the best things about this country is the fact that, that we are so cosmopolitan. We have got lots of different nations, different cultures here, but, but we've got to be speaking the same language. And to be fair, to flip the coin, and something you mentioned earlier on about Brits going abroad, and they tend to live in ghettos... They go to their British bars, yes. the British restaurants. That, again, is wrong. But, yeah. but if we are to be one nation, surely we should be speaking the language which is English. A bit like that man earlier, where they are using sign language, working in this country using sign language to understand each other. That, to a lot of people, is, is just not right. Well, listen, you, you've got a holiday coming up next week, uh, Alf Garnet. It, it, sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like you need it. Thank you, Ian. Speak to you later on. That was our uh, correspondent on the street, Alf Garnet. Um, HS2. By the way, you, you can give uh, JVS a call now if, if you want. I give you permission to do that, to go and listen to another show. Uh, is it a good idea to deny benefits to people who can't speak English? That's what he's talking about after nine o'clock. You, you just know that some of it... His shows are always good. His worst show is at least good. But you know that sometimes it's going to be a cracker. I suspect today's will be a cracker. Oh, we'll have that turned up in the office. We'll, upstairs in the office, don't, don't listen to Hart from nine o'clock. We'll, we'll listen to JVS for a bit. We'll give him a crack, see how he uh, gets on. HS2, £33 billion pounds yesterday today. £43 billion today. Oh, by the way, the trains are an extra £7 billion. I I didn't know that the trains weren't included 
in the original price. I just assumed they were. We spoke to uh, someone from HS2 uh, earlier on in the show, a lady called Alison Munro, who said, oh, no, no, we've always been honest and open about this. The, tra- the, the, the cost of the trains, the £7.5 billion for the trains, no, we've always said that was separate. I didn't know that. Am I stupid? Ken in Luton, am I stupid? Yes, you're a silly boy. Am I? Yes. Why? Well, that's the first time I've heard of this. All the time I've been listening to the government and everything about this H2 thing, and... HS2? Are you you sure we're getting the signals with this? (laughs) (laughs) Eh? Or are they just going to bore holes through the countryside? (laughs) We might have to pay extra... So you didn't know... No. ...that the trains weren't included in the the original price. So you're an idiot as well, then, in that case. Of course I am. If we didn't know... And Alison Munro from HS2 sounded very surprised when I, I flagged up. We, we've had a text from Janet in Chesson. Uh, I, I, bless you, Janet. I didn't think train costs were included because I naively thought that the company running the service would bring their own trains. Oh, well, I love it. that. I, Are we going to get the coaches and that built in Germany or Poland? Uh, the, 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 I think they might be German, German trains. And there's, there, was, there was a 95% chance, Ken, a 95% chance that we won't go over the 43 billion pounds oh, like the olympics yeah we, we work, the, the, it's worked out using a very very complicated formula ken oh well, it's too I, complicated for you and me to understand oh yes but we can we can read english but we can't find where they said that the trains weren't included ken listen we've got to, got to end it there i'm gonna get a couple I, I, I bet all right i bet you dear listener a tenner just uh, I, I, I don't but i bet you a tenner it goes well over 50 billion pounds including trains I bet you a tenner. Uh, Jenny and Letchworth says, uh, more costs. And what? Uh, don't forget drivers for the trains, recruitment, training. I expect they drive themselves self-guided. Well, it turns out we're, we're all idiots, dear listener. We did not know. Oh, dear. Well, the impossible happened today. HS2 just got sexy. We'll be following this and more. That's it from me. JVS is up next. Until tomorrow, ta-ta. On FM, AM, online and digital radio. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Ian.